Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this incredible privilege that we have to meet freely, openly, publicly, to sing your praises, to open your word, to read it, to seek to understand it together. And our longing is that we would hear your voice. Father, we've gathered with different life circumstances, different challenges, and we know that you can meet and satisfy the desires of each one, each person's heart this morning. And we ask that you would speak to us now by your Holy Spirit, through your word, and shape us as your people. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, what is it that you are living for? This past week at the Conservative Party conference, David Cameron uh, spoke of the death of his son as a time of evaluating what life was really all about. And he turned and pointed to his wife and said that she was the, the person that inspired and motivated him to keep pursuing politics and to make a difference uh, in Britain. Now, that's what motivates him. What is it that really motivates you? What do you live for? Uh, if your family and friends were describing you, if I was to have a conversation with them, if I was to gather them all together and say, uh, tell me about this person, what would they say you lived for? What would they say about you? Now, people live for all sorts of different things, don't they? Uh, some people live to increase their wealth. Some people live to get power, uh, recognition, or fame. Uh, some want to just make a positive difference in their lives. When we really boil it down, I think often we're just looking to be happy, aren't we? To be content. To, to know joy. And we go after that in very simple, mundane things. People look forward to the next concert, the next football match, uh, the next night down the pub with their friends, the next nightclub event, the next rugby game, the next opportunity to go down to the gym to get the perfectly toned body, to play the perfect round of golf. Some people live their lives waiting for that magic moment where everything comes together for 18 holes. Or maybe you live to go sailing or to go on holiday. Some people just live to go on the next vacation. Some people live to watch TV, it seems. Anything to avoid boredom. People live just to avoid boredom. But at the end of the day, the search for joy seems rather elusive and temporary and, and often we are left feeling dissatisfied. Now, what is it that we are living for today? I want you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. You'll find that on page 1178, if you have one of these church Bibles, page 1178. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, put your hand up and see if someone will bring one to you. Maybe we need to get some more Bibles. Why don't you follow with me as I, as I read um, this section, Philippians chapter 1, verses 18, second half of verse 18 to 26, and see what the Apostle Paul lived for. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me 
will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm going, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Now there are three very striking statements here that I want us to consider this morning. Three statements by the Apostle Paul uh, as a model to the Christians in Philippi, which I believe are still a challenging example to us if we are followers of Jesus today. And really my hope and prayer this week as I've been preparing is that God's word would draw out from my heart and from our hearts faith in response to his word so that we would live with the same passion and the same purpose as as we see the apostle here. So there's three striking statements. Firstly, the choice to rejoice in verses 18 to 20. Look at that statement, verses 18b, the second half. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Rejoice. Now just recall for a moment his circumstances. He's not uh, sitting on a beach in Barbados. Paul is bound by chains. He's locked up in a Roman prison. Uh, They were pretty brutal places, not like the nice prisons we have today. They're pretty rough today, but they were far worse back then. And he's in there because he's been preaching about Jesus. That's why he's in prison. And last week we read the verses before this, and we saw that while he was in prison, some people who apparently were Christians, supposed to be on his team, were were acting in a way to try and cause him even more pain, to afflict him. So he's in prison, he's suffering for Jesus, and there's people outside trying to make him feel bad, and all the while he's awaiting his trial date. Uh, He's going to have his day in court, and the result of that could well be a death sentence. So he could be sitting on death row. That's his circumstances. And yet, he is rejoicing. Now, isn't that extraordinary? I, uh, you know, like you, I've chatted to many people this week. On the whole, do you find people perky? Or are they groaning and moaning? Well, it's been a sunnier week, hasn't it? So, that's good. Now, often we have a pretty sweet life. And yet when people bump into us, we moan. Now here's the Apostle Paul. He is rejoicing. Now how is this? How is it? It's clearly not about his circumstances, is it? It's not the comfort of his situation. Um, It's clearly not because everybody loves him. One reason we saw last week that he uh, was, was this. He could see that his life was contributing to the progress of the gospel. He could see that his suffering had purpose. That was a cause for joy for him. 
But he has other reasons for joy as he continues his letter. He, he not only is able to rejoice as what, as what has been happening in his present circumstances, he is able to rejoice as he considers the future. And there are two reasons that give him joy in the present as he considers the future. Number one, verse 19, his future salvation. Look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul's joy is at the knowledge that he will be delivered. Now what's he getting excited about? Is it the thought of being acquitted at trial and getting out of prison? Now that certainly would be an exciting prospect, wouldn't it? But I don't think that's what he's saying. He doesn't know the outcome of the trial. He makes that clear. Uh, This is a section where he's thinking about two possible outcomes. He's weighing them up. We're hearing an internal conversation with Paul that he writes down. He's not sure what's going to happen at the end. As it says in verse 20, is it going to end by life or by death? He really doesn't know. Is he going to walk out of prison or is he going to be carried out as a corpse? He does not know. You know, underneath that word delivered is a Greek word for salvation. And always, Paul uses that term for the final day of salvation. His joy is at the thought of his future salvation. What he's considering here is not the trial before the emperor, but the trial of standing before God at the end of his life. Will he remain faithful to Jesus as he awaits his day in court, as he awaits the events that may follow? Will he hold on to Christ and so be acquitted by God on the final day of judgment? Or will he give way to fear and give up his profession for Christ and so be ashamed? That's what he's considering. Those are his real concerns. It's about his standing before God rather than whether he keeps his life or not. And what fills him with joy is this. As he considers the future before God, he is confident that he will be delivered. He will be saved. It fills him with joy to consider his final salvation. His eager expectation and hope is that he will have nothing to be ashamed of when he stands before God. There will be no regrets about his speech or his conduct. In fact, as he looks uh, to the future, he's full of joy. Secondly, in verse 20, for the opportunity to exalt Christ. See that in verse 20? He is confident that he will have enough courage as his trial day approaches to be a conspicuous witness to Jesus Christ. I think conspicuous is an awfully weird word. I'm not fully convinced about that statement. But anyway, he is... He is He's full of confidence that he will be a clear witness to Jesus on that trial day. His great passion was to tell people about how amazing Jesus Christ is. It's like he sees his body as like a massive light bulb and he just wants the greatness of Jesus to shine out of him. And so uh, he's full of joy at the thought of how in that public forum he can stand there before the court and tell people how brilliant Jesus is. He wants to magnify Jesus. He wants um, to publicly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wants to put it on record that he was in prison because of his hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His hope that Jesus is the only one uh, through whom we can have our sins forgiven. The only one through whom that we can be right with God. 
the, that Jesus is the, is, is the only one that really we should be worshipping and living our lives for, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was looking forward to that day when he could stand there and publicly say, on trial, Jesus Christ is Lord. He, he can't wait for that day. He's looking forward to that day. It fills him with joy to consider that day. Now, is that our attitude to Jesus Christ? Well, if you're not a Christian here today, you're saying, no, not at all. I find it very strange that people should think like that. Do, do we so see the uniqueness and the glory of Jesus Christ, that the main focus of our lives is not to magnify ourselves, is not to go around saying, look how fabulous I am. And you've all met people like that, haven't you? We find lots of subtle ways as we grow up to say, look at me. Well, a Christian is someone who's come to realize that there's someone more glorious than himself. And that's Jesus Christ. And, and his great passion, the great passion of a, of a, of a believing uh, Christian man or woman is that they want to exalt and magnify Jesus Christ. They want to make much of Jesus because they know that Jesus is the most amazing person. And my question is, is that how you feel about Jesus? Is that how I feel about Jesus? Can we say with Paul, you know, now as always, my hope is that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, when people bump into us, do they go away, if they spend any time with us, do they go away thinking, that person thinks an awful lot about Jesus. <laughs> you know, that person actually thinks that Jesus is the most important person in history, and it's clear to me that Jesus is the most important person in their life. Well, that's what it was like to bump into Paul. And I'm hugely challenged by his example. I fall well short of it. And it makes me ask the question, how can Paul be so confident? How can he be so full of joy as he considers the future? How can he be so certain that he will not fudge it, that he will not bottle it, but that he will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord in that, in that environment? How can he be so confident? Is Paul just some superhuman saint? An example that is just way beyond us. Couldn't be like you, Paul. You're awesome. We're not. We couldn't do it. Is that, is, is that what Paul's about? Well, Paul makes it very clear that he's not like this because he's got amazing resources, because he's got an amazing character, because he's got amazing courage or strength. He wants us to know that it's not because of that. Look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. That's a rich verse to mine. His confidence is in the resources, the courage, the strength of character that will be given to him by God's Holy Spirit. That's where his confidence is. And notice the description of the Spirit here, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful expression. Jesus taught his disciples before the cross that uh, it would be there to their advantage that he would go back to the Father because then the Spirit would be spent out, sent out, the one who was just like him. And his Spirit would be with them and empower them to be courageous witnesses to him. 
And Paul's confidence is in the work of the Spirit in his life to do that. He's fully confident that there'll be sufficient grace and power given by the Spirit to enable him to make this courageous stand for Jesus. It's not because he's an awesome, stoic man. It's because he's a Spirit-filled man that he has this confidence. And how is he confident the Spirit would indeed come and empower him? Because what? What does it say, verse 19? Because the Philippians were at prayer. God's Holy Spirit was at work in Paul's life because the Father was answering the prayers of the Philippians on his behalf. Does prayer make any difference? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, yes. Perhaps. Perhaps we lack courage and a desire to glorify Christ in our lives because we know too little of the work of the Spirit in our lives. And perhaps... The reason that we don't experience a greater measure of the Spirit's influence is because we do not ask our Heavenly Father to give the, greater, the greatest gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 11? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Well, the Philippians were asking for the Spirit. Asking for the Spirit to empower Paul. And Paul was experiencing the work of the Spirit in his life. The empowering presence of the Spirit of Jesus. And so he is looking forward to giving a clear witness to Jesus. And be able to therefore stand on the final day before God unashamed. A few weeks back we looked at the prayer of Paul for the Philippians. In in chapter 1 verses 9 to 11. And I think that that final element, verse 11, was no doubt a prayer that Paul prayed for himself. If you look at verse 11, that um, on the day of Christ, the end of verse 10, that on the day of Christ, that he would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, Paul knew that his future salvation on that final day was not because of his achievements. It's not because he had done so much witnessing that God says, you're right with me. No, not at all. We never earn our salvation. We can't possibly make ourselves right with God. We can never do enough. You can never do enough praying, giving, witnessing, serving. You just can't, you, you just can't do enough to make yourself right with God. He knows on the final day he'll be right with God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That on that day he would be filled with Uh, the good standing before God that came through Jesus Christ. On that final day, when he's vindicated before God, the person who gets all the glory and praise will be Jesus. His righteous life, his sin-bearing death, his resurrection, his power experienced through God's Holy Spirit, that Jesus would get all the glory on the final day. So if if we're looking at Paul thinking, well, he's so heroic. That's why he was, you know, confident. No, he's confident because Jesus is at work in his life. He's confident that the Spirit is in operation and though he will stand on the final day because God is at work. Now, that's a lot of stuff, isn't it? Let me summarize this. Why is Paul full of joy? Well, because he's confident of his future salvation. And my friends, if you're trusting Jesus today, you can be confident of your future salvation. 
and he's full of joy at the privilege of being able to point other people to Jesus. He's full of joy about that. He's in prison. He has every reason to feel miserable, doesn't he? Every time he moves, those iron chains are chafing and causing sores on his arms. Every reason to feel utterly miserable. But instead of doing that, he reminds himself about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He knows that he has been saved, that he was being saved, and that he would be saved because of Jesus. And he just can't get over it. That's why he wants to tell people about Jesus. He just can't get over the fact that he's saved. And so he considers all of that and he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Do you know that joy is a choice? Do you know that? Yes, I will continue to rejoice. There are times when we have to sit ourselves down and pull ourselves out of our navels, out of our pity party, and remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, yes, and I will rejoice. I will rejoice. That's a striking statement, isn't it? Number one, the choice to rejoice. Number two, his purpose to live for Christ. Look at verse 21. What do you live for, Paul? Well, here's his answer. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He almost wants to give a rationale for how he can live the way he lives. And here it is, the constant passion of the Apostle Paul's life was not money or success. It was not honor or personal comfort. The constant passion of Paul's life was to know and serve Jesus Christ. That's what he was about. Here was the fundamental value that underpinned his motivation from the Damascus Road onwards. The Lord Jesus had captivated his life. And so he says, well, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 22, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And we're almost hearing this internal dialogue. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So in this context, I think to live for Christ surely means that that for Paul, to keep on living here means living to serve Christ. What's life about for Paul? Life for Paul was about Christ-centered service. Life was about Christ-centered empowered service. Life was about Christ's presence in his service. And the, and, the, and the pros, as he weighs up, okay, what's the pluses for staying around in this life, for living? There in verse 22, it's further opportunity for fruitful labor, for Christ. Wow, if I get to keep living, I get to keep serving Christ here, fruitfully. And if he dies... And that brings his ministry to an end. Not a problem. No problemo. He didn't live for Christian ministry. It was not an end in itself. He lived for Christ. Do you remember how Paul started the letter? Chapter 1, verse 1 there. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Death would bring the amazing privilege of being face to face once more with the glorious presence of Jesus Christ, his master. And Paul's constant passion is to live and even be willing to die for Christ. 
And that's the key to his personal contentment and the key to his joy. It was the key to his courage and his tenacity. Now, what can you, what can you do with a person like that? What can you do to a person like that? It's very hard to shut them up, isn't it? There's not a lot you can threaten them with. Shut up or I'll kill you. Great, I'll get to be with Jesus. John Patton was a Scot who ministered in Glasgow and uh, around the 19th century. And while he was training in theology and medical studies, he came to hear of uh, the people of the New Hebrides of the South Seas. And the people there at that time were famous for being cannibals. And when he offered himself to serve as a missionary there, almost everyone thought it was a very silly idea. And one old man who was uh, interviewing him said, The cannibals! You'll be eaten by cannibals! Mr. Dixon, replied Patton, this young missionary appointee. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether my body is eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. The central passion of Paul's life and of Patton's was to live for Christ. So he's not overly precious about his life. We live in a very risk-averse culture, don't we? There are people out there trying to protect us from every stupidity that we could think of. Rules and regulations. I got a toaster the other day. It gave me helpful instructions what not to do with a toaster. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Do you know what? This is a dangerous world dangerous world but if you're living for Christ you can make your life count you'll not be frightened to go into dangerous places because ultimately your life's not precious to you what's precious to you is Christ proclaiming Christ living for Christ that was Paul's passion that was that was John Patton's passion let's let's note the real comfort here in, in these verses what is death for the believer like well, look at verse 23. Death means to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. What a beautiful phrase that is. Now, some have seen in that word depart shades of Paul's occasional job as a tent maker. I don't know whether you've gone camping recently or bought some new kit, but the new tents are fantastic. You know, you can pop them up and put them down in about 10 minutes so you can just quickly depart the campsite and keep, keep moving. Well, Paul's view of the, of, of the person who's put their trust in Christ is that death is just like packing up your tent and moving on from the temporary life to the true home of heaven. Death is, is always painful. It's always full of sadness for the loved ones left behind. But for the believer who departs, what greets him on the other side of death is something of greatest joy, to be with the Lord Jesus. The Christian believer has no need to fear death. Now, if we live to possess money, fame, and possessions, dear, uh, death is a terrifying thing, isn't it? 
Because you spent all those years gathering and amassing and you're going to lose it all with death. But for those who live for Christ, death is gain. For we will be with Christ. Now, is this a verse that encourages suicide? No. It does not encourage suicide. Paul never sought to end his life. And in these verses, we get this eavesdropping on his internal struggle. He doesn't know what the future will bring. If he is to die, he's not frightened of, what, of that for himself. But his greatest concern here is to think about the impact of that on others. Now, this is the tragedy of suicide people, is that they stop thinking about the impact on others, don't they? Suicide is very selfish. Paul is not acting and speaking like a suicide person. He, he, he's weighing up his concerns about how it's going to impact other people. His passion to live for Christ was expressed in his commitment to labor for others. And I think this is the third striking statement here. There's two purposes almost. The purpose to live for Christ, and my third point today, the purpose to labor for the joyful progress of others. That's what he's got in verses 25 to 26. Look at verse 22 again. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And then verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. So Paul's sitting there in jail. And instead of moping around, and I'm sure he must have had downers. It must, I mean, it can't have been, he wasn't, wasn't uh, an idiot. But in that tough environment, he was able to still rejoice at the sureness of his future salvation. And that stemmed from his constant passion to live for Christ. And his passion to live for Christ meant that he could live his life laboring for other people. Now, Christian bookstores are filled with books about being committed to progress, and they're terribly selfish books. By and large, you've got terrible books like Your Best Life Now, and they generally just feed our narcissistic self-love. You can be the best you. Oh, yeah, progress in my life. That's what they're about. Well, Paul's talking about very different progress here. He's talking about living a life so that others will make progress, that others will be advanced in their understanding of the Christian faith. If Paul gets acquitted and released, he knows it'll be because of the continued need to help these young Christians in Philippi to grow in their faith. A growth in their faith that will produce joy in the gospel. I love this. What's Christian ministry about? If you labor and serve in any, in any way in this church, if you run a fellowship group, if you're involved with a sort of uniform groups or the youth ministry or all the different ministries that are going on, men's ministry, women's ministry. Why are you doing that? What are you about? Well, here's your job description. It is to labor to see other people grow in their joy. What a great reason to serve. Why am I doing this? I actually want to see this church grow in its joy. You want to be part of this church? We're about growing in joy. That's a pretty cool church to be in, don't you think? We're laboring here that you will uh, 
progress and advance in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that will result in growing joy. Now what are we willing to die for? Here's a more challenging question. What are we, what are we living for? You see, if we're living to pursue joy, it's always going to result in frustration and emptiness. Paul here points us to a far greater purpose in life, to live for Christ. And here is the place of usefulness and of lasting eternal joy. And Jesus himself expressed the same paradox, didn't he? To hold on to a self-focused life will mean ultimately to lose it. But if we're willing to lose our life, For the sake of Christ and his gospel, we truly gain life. I don't know whether you've discovered that truth. Stop living to please yourself and start living to see other people advance the gospel. There is true joy. There is true usefulness. Is that what we're living for? Let's seek God's grace that we may live in that way. Let's pray.